Welcome to episode 56 of Stageworthy. I'm your host, Phil Rickaby. Stageworthy is a podcast about people in Canadian theatre. I'd love to hear from you. If you want to tell me about a project you're working on or just want to drop me a line, you can find Stageworthy on Facebook and Twitter at StageworthyPod, and you can find the website at StageworthyPodcast.com. If you like the podcast, I hope you'll subscribe on iTunes or Google Music or whatever podcast app you use and consider leaving a comment or rating. My guest, Sarah Merling, is an arts administrator and the executive director of the Professional Association of Canadian Theatres. The interesting thing, do you find that, that, that working in nine to five in theater, uh, like thinking theater, living theater uh, from nine to five and then going to theater is, is, do you find that draining? Do you find it difficult or is it? I I think, you know, uh, the job gets tiring, Mm, right? Yeah. And like any individual in order to enjoy leisure time activities. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You have to be able to uh, have the energy, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. And what ha- what can happen is that, um, especially if there's a gap between the end of your workday and mm. looking up the tickets, yes, yes, um, your energy drops right off. And mm-hmm. then I don't necessarily think it does service to the piece you're seeing, mm-hmm. right? Because you're not bringing your full self. Yeah. Whereas. Um, if I go do something uh, that is not theater, mm-hmm. right, that is dance or yeah. film, I can sometimes have that energy. Mm. But my partner who works in the nonprofit sector but not in the arts, uh, one of the challenges I have is my big excitement for relaxation mm-hmm. is putting on my pajamas. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's funny because I have the same, the same, like I walk in the door and I am like track pants, comfy clothes, I'm just sitting down. Yep. And... And when you when you actively participate in going out for a living, mm-hmm. um, going out as leisure yeah. um, uh, can be. Yeah, it's not uh, it's not as alluring. Yeah, as it might be. Yeah, so. because it's still like there's still that that uh, because going out is part of your job, so yeah. it's not like it's not special in that way. It's like it still seems like part of your workday. Yeah, 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 and 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 as well. Um, it also, it, it's knowing too much. I, like I sometimes feel that being a theater professional can suck the magic out of the experience. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, I sat on, uh, the Dora jury when mm-hmm. um, years that's, ago. That's gotta be a tough job. It was, and it, I was doing indie mm-hmm. at that point. And so there were 70 shows. And what happens is, at a certain point, nobody will go to theater with you anymore. Mm, yeah. Because you've, like, run out of... You've run out of partners. Uh, you've run out of partners. Yeah. And uh, I remember seeing, oh, a dreadful, dreadful show. And I had taken uh, uh, my husband, and he was like, I liked it. And, like, <laughs> and he said, why didn't you like it? And I was like, meh. And I was like, because it wasn't well done. Mm-hmm. And I don't know why they did it. And um, he said, well, I'm an audience member and I liked it. 
And I said, well, I think it's great, but my job is actually mm -hmm. to be more yeah. than a passive receiver. I'm yeah. supposed to be able to. I mean, I've studied yeah. it. Yeah. You know, uh, I can tell when someone's clearly dropped a line or when the lighting cue is late mm -hmm. or, mm -hmm. yeah. So. Yeah, it's tough to go. It's tough to, to, to go from... It's hard to, when you do it, it's hard to turn off that part of your brain and yeah. just sort of let the show take you. It's rarely rare when that for that to happen. I've, I've had a couple of experiences where that's happened to me recently. But again, they are, that's kind of rare when I can just forget that I am, that I know the inside. Well, know. and, and I, that is, it, it is, it's kind of a sadness. It, mm -hmm. it is yeah. a bit of a sadness. Yeah. Um, and, and I think that that's why the works that really do move you are so mm -hmm. extraordinary and yeah. you can, and you remember them yeah. and you use them as recharging events. Mm -hmm. I think. And yeah. that is why I do this. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. So those are, yeah, those are the good moments. Mm. Yeah. What does, so I, I mean, I have a general idea about what PACT is, okay. but I'd love to know more, like, I think I, I have sort of like a, uh, it exists, it must do this. This is the name of it, Professional Association of Canadian Theatres. It must do something with that. But I don't think I know the specifics of what PACT does. Oh. So can you tell me, uh, and anybody who might be in the same boat as I do, what PACT does? Well, um, we, we, we've had an evolved existence. Mm -hmm. So PACT is 40 years old this year. We were founded in 1976, originally as the, and this is going to sound like a lecture, please. Okay, no, no, me. no, please, please, um, I love this. Originally yeah. as the group of theatres that came together to negotiate with the newly formed Canadian Actors' Equity. Mm -hmm. Because prior to that, American Actors' Equity sort of operated in this jurisdiction, Canadian Actors' Equity was formed, um, and they needed a management group to negotiate the very different mm -hmm. uh, landscape for Canadian theatres. Uh, over the years, uh, PACT has grown. We now have 143 members. Originally, uh, membership in PACT meant that you adhered to the negotiated Canadian Theatre Agreement. Mm -hmm. We now have two kinds of members, regular members and affiliates. Affiliates whose practice may not be supported by a quite traditional sort of three-and-a-half-week rehearsal, three-and-a-half-week run, mm -hmm. um, are members but don't necessarily use that agreement. Mm -hmm. They may still engage uh, equity members, mm -hmm. but they're not actually adhering in that way. And so over the years, uh, PACT grew. We added different agreements. We negotiate with Associated Designers of Canada, Playwrights Guild of Canada, and we support uh, the negotiations for our uh, members in Quebec with the Quebec Scenic Artists Association, mm -hmm. Scenic Designers of PASC. And I'm not going to murder that acronym. It's a <laughs> Um, uh, as well, um, in addition to those uh, agreements, we also provide professional development uh, programs. Mm -hmm. uh, we do. We have a lot of peer-to-peer -peer support. Mm -hmm. Canadian theatre, as I'm sure you're aware, is very peer-to-peer. -peer. Mm -hmm. If you don't know what to do, the easiest thing to do is to call a friend who you know has done a similar yes. thing at another yep. theatre. Mm -hmm. PACT actually kind of acts as, like a nexus for that okay. activity. Um, one of the big things we do uh, annually is our, our conference, which moves across the country. 
um, was in Calgary in 2016, was in Toronto in 2015, will be in Charlottetown in 2017, which is sort of the largest gathering of theatre professionals, mm-hmm. um, uh, sort of theatre leaders, ADs, managing directors, senior staff, um, and it, it's very much a networking opportunity. Mm-hmm. Uh, when I was not in a packed member company, I quite snottily referred to it as theatre summer camp for the rich kids, <laughs> uh, which is not what it is. Um, but I used to see people come out of it so energized mm. and so excited and having these new relationships. And I realized that that's really what it is. It's not mm. very often you get to sit in a room with mm-hmm. a bunch of peers and have conversations about all the same things we experience, audience attrition, evolving marketing, um, new trends, new artistic trends, because there's a very uh, active artistic conversation going on, mm-hmm. um, and also um, being exposed to new ideas from elsewhere. Mm-hmm. So it's a really, it's, it, it was sort of our centerpiece. Um, for a long time, Pact was very, you're in membership or out of membership. Mm-hmm. Uh, our new strategic plan is now about openness and inclusivity um, uh, and certainly working on a major program around equity, diversity and inclusion in Canadian theatre, mm-hmm. uh, which is based on sort of some training and learnings in social justice practice. Mm-hmm. So it's not just about changing your policies, it's really about identifying, you know, uh, an individual, generally a theater leader's social location and how that impacts decision making mm-hmm. and and uh, and how unconscious bias plays out in institutions, mm-hmm. which is uh, really reflected in an underfunded theater community. Mm-hmm. We don't have a lot of money to do broad-based auditions or searches. Yeah. And, and as a result, quite often you end up with what looks like a closed shop because you're going to work with people you know. Yes. Yeah. And, and so it's a way, the program is intended to break down the ways in which we look around us for mm-hmm. other people. Yeah. Um, and I'm very excited about that. Uh, it's sort of, it's been one of my drives since I came here. Um, also because I realized I'd had such a, skewed perception of what the organization did. Mm. One of the things I want to do is get out and talk to the community. Mm -hmm. Um, We advocate for theater at the federal government. Mm -hmm. We're a member of the steering committee for the Canadian Arts Coalition. um, And we're a founding member. And so we're pleased to see when the liberal uh, culture platform literally picked up all of the Canadian Arts Coalition's Mm -hmm. recommendations that have been on the table for 10 years. Right. Um, and now our job is to sort of help uh, the theater community navigate through the challenges in, you know, funding uh, assessment criteria in the new era. Mm-hmm. When you're speaking about the, uh, the, the theater community, are you speaking um, broadly about the uh, professional theaters, the equity theaters? Are you talking about uh, the independent artists? Which part of the, when, when you were specifically speaking about the theater community, is there an area of that that is of focus um, for you? Well, first I want to say there is no such thing as an equity theater. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. That I think I want to make that really yeah. clear. It's not like an IATSE house mm-hmm. where the venue is a union venue. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, projects yes. either engage equity artists through the CTA or the independent theater agreement mm-hmm. or the DOT, the dance opera theater, or uh, Indie 2.0, mm-hmm. or the 
festivals agreement mm-hmm. or the, uh, I think it's called cooperative now. Um, really professional, when I talk about the theater community, I'm talking about the professional theater community. Yeah. It encompasses every size and shape of professional okay. theater. You know, the idea that uh, professional theater engages artists who have trained mm-hmm. or are, uh, uh, or in the process emerging of the, out of their training process mm-hmm. uh, and who intend on pursuing careers as artists mm-hmm. or uh, uh, arts workers. Right. Um, and, uh, that commitment is generally shown within companies by a commitment, a desire to pay yes. a living wage to artists, mm-hmm. whether they're a member of Canadian Actors' Equity or not, right. um, to pay our designers, mm-hmm. to pay our stage management, to pay our front of house staff. Right. Um, there are blended companies, generally uh, organizations or collectives at early stages of mm-hmm. their evolution don't have that capacity yet. Yeah. That doesn't mean they're not professional. Mm-hmm. They are they are sort of at an emergent stage right. of right. their existence. So it's not, it, it, it doesn't necessarily mean uh, incorporated registered charities who are venue-based. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it, it can include everything from a loose collective of artists mm-hmm. to, you know, professional theater activity as it happens right. in the Rhubarb Festival. Mm-hmm. Or uh, in the fringe, because right. arguably there is a whole professional practice that has arisen within the fringe festivals in Canada. Absolutely, that's actually a lot of the a lot of the the people that I know, like personally, are the people who've come up through and are still like actively pursuing. That's their living is is the fringe festival circuit and that sort of thing. And that's a whole Canada has yeah. an has the biggest fringe circuit in the world. Yeah, right. And uh, from little tiny ones to big ones, and and certainly. Um, the the rise of the fringes in Canada has uh, radically changed mm. um, the scope of the landscape. In fact, it, it caused sort of an explosion mm-hmm. of activity, um, and, and I think it, it makes it quite exciting. I think so. I think, like, for me, I know, first of all, there's people that, that I know that I never would have met uh, if I wasn't for the fringe circuit who come from as far away as Australia to be a part of the Canadian fringe circuit and bring mm-hmm. their art here. Additionally, I know when I was in theater school back in the 90s, mm-hmm. fringe was a thing that we, it was just there. Nobody ever really, we didn't really talk about it. It was this thing that happened. And nobody ever talks about producing your own work. But now that kind of self-producing stuff has become so integral to, the, to building a career in theater for a lot of people. Um, so it's interesting to see how the fringe has changed just in the time that I've been like looking at it. <laughs> well, and, and one of the, the, the issues for me, and this is let, mm-hmm. a soapbox moment, let yeah. me get up on one, yeah, yeah. is <clears throat> that, um, uh, first we were flatlined in funding for mm-hmm. so many years, right? After the mid eighties, it became almost impossible. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, for emerging companies who tended to be more exploratory, more culturally diverse, working outside the norm, mm-hmm. uh, to get into the cycle. Right. But uh, a colleague of mine uh, has estimated that the post-secondary institutions are graduating 1,500 new artists every year. Yeah. And how many new managers or producers are they graduating? Um, <clears throat> some of the post-secondary institutions have... Uh, how to start your own company, Um, which means we have a proliferation of self-producing new company environments when we could be working with the system as it exists. And Mm -hmm. part of that is I don't know that we do a terrific job in training uh, 
and I'll, I'll say theater people because mm-hmm. I'm thinking, you know, I thought I was going to be an actor. Then I was like, well, maybe I'll do stage management. Maybe mm-hmm. I'll do costume design. And then I discovered as a control freak that it really was a manager <laughs> producer. Although I, ha- I did write a play, which mm-hmm. sold out in a few fringe runs. Um, uh, but uh, we, we really are missing a next generation mm-hmm. of uh, theater managers and theater producers. I think there's the producers who know how to get a show up mm-hmm. in a fringe yeah. or uh, renting a small venue or engaging in a storefront or even one of the back spaces. Yeah. But uh, when it comes to creating a sustainable company structure that can actually then move through the process of evolution mm-hmm. to, especially now there's more money, um, to uh, uh, employing their arts workers who are not actors, you know, to providing a living wage, to yeah. adequately contracting, to training, to getting boards of directors to understand how. We just, we have not really created a stream <clears throat> for that. Is that, I think, is that a failing of the, of the institutions that are that are that are graduating so many classes because there aren't really, um, if you look at the the theater schools, there aren't arts like there aren't producing uh, streams. There aren't well, that, I, that kind of education does not seem to exist. Well, there's arts administration <clears throat> programs. Mm-hmm. You know, Humber Centennial. Um, uh, Grant McEwen used to have one. I don't know if they have one anymore. Um, which are geared as, as post, uh, gra- uh, postgraduate certificate programs, mm-hmm. right? Which presupposes that someone is going to have a study. I mean, I, I jokingly say I, I never heard of anyone who graduated high school. Uh, I'm going to be an arts administrator. No, of course. Um, although I did just actually meet a couple, so no, I have to take that back. Um, I, but I think the drive to work in theater is a, is a very specific drive, mm-hmm. and if the, the opportunity to become a producer was it was a stream outside of performance production, mm-hmm. if you added that, I think there would be students there. If they yeah. coming out of that first year, uh, uh, what do they call them? Oh, the the one where you do everything in one year, the first year syllabus. Yeah, right? I don't I don't remember what it's called, uh, but I know I know what you're referring to. Survey course. Yes, the first year survey. Um, it would be great if, if they really was a, this is what mm. producers can do. This is right. what theater managers can do. Um, and, and, I, and I think it is a, it isn't a lack. Yeah. And it's something that's sort of on my agenda to continue mm. to push forward. Um, because we're going to have a big gap pretty soon. Yeah. I think. Yeah, I think so. There's a lot of people who are learning how to produce on their feet, which is not necessarily the best way to do it. And to go from producing fringe to producing like full theater, like a season or even just mm-hmm. like, like granting opportunity, like that sort of thing. That is hard to learn on your feet without uh, a lot of trial and error. And that's a really expensive trial and error if you're like trying to produce that way. Well, and mentorship and internship programs. I mean, you know, once upon a time, 30 years ago, what you know. Uh, when I started, there there were uh, more inter- There was first there were fewer companies, and there was mm-hmm. more internships. Yeah, because it was pre fringe actually, and or the Edmonton fringe had started, but Toronto hadn't much. Right, and um, and so in general, you graduated theater school, you got a job in front of house mm-hmm. or in the office, or you worked box office, or you had a day job. Mm-hmm. Um, 
and you you began to pick up fringe producing on the side. If you were fortunate, you secured an internship and got to work in a company where you could acquire those skills. Right. And that that was how, and none of us had any formal training. Mm-hmm. And that is how we became uh, theater managers. Yeah. You know, my generation is Nancy Webster. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, well, she was in my class, so she's always the one I remember. <laughs> um, but I mean, it, we so we sort of went through that generation. Yeah. We had mentors um, who stayed with us throughout. Um, and now what you see is um, that there's actually many emerging young pro- producers, mm-hmm. really talented administrators, mm-hmm. um, who could be amazing, are actually stuck because there's no way for them to get that. Right. They can't get that push to, to become uh, more proficient in what they're That's doing. That's right. Yeah. And, and, and so that I think is something we have to look at in a big way and, mm-hmm. and start having those conversations mm-hmm. in the same way that there is actually no formal training program for an artistic director. That's very true. That's very true. You, I think just like with, uh, producing, the only way that you learn how to be an artistic director is for somebody to put you in that role and say, what's your season? Well, and you know, and, and you start, you know, you are, uh, you work within a theater in the box office, you apply to another theater, maybe you've written a play, maybe you've directed a couple of shows in a fringe, um, and then maybe you get uh, an associate artist, maybe you get a Theater Ontario professional theater training program. Mm-hmm. I know Ontario better than yeah. the rest because I went through my professional life here. Um, but And then you move into associate artistic directorship, mm-hmm. getting it direct on the show, having a, a, a relationship and a reputation, and mm-hmm. then moving up. Um, and in fact, uh, we see that across the country. Mm-hmm. You know? Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. I'm not even sure, like, because the, I think that I, I, I know there's a, a lot of people that I can think of who are in that position of being... Uh, quite, almost at a loss for because it is actually hard to get into a fringe, right? Yeah, well, because it's, it's the lottery, luck of the draw. Exactly, luck of the yeah. draw. But if you get in, then great. But if you don't, then you're like, how do I produce this thing? Because fringe is at a certain level that's affordable for the independent artist. And then, uh, but how do you go beyond that? If you have something that you want to do, um, I think there, there's a lack of uh, a knowledge that that, that mentorship and, and that sort of thing would help with. I think so too, and certainly for people who come through that. Mm-hmm. Right? Yeah. Um, I, I, I think it also depends on whether or not you produced a show when you were at school, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, because sometimes uh, artists graduate and they've been part of departmental productions, right. but they've never actually produced a show. Right. Uh, I, I went to York, which I was really fortunate. There was tons of independent mm. uh, work on campus. In fact, got to the stage that by third year, I was having profs say, are you still in the program? <laughs> but like, yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm just doing all sorts of other stuff. Yeah. So I think it's funny because I know that like all the programs are different. Because not every... Because I, I came out of the George Brown... Oh, and you're uh, not allowed there's, to do anything. There's, no, no, no. You are in it and you're doing that. So there isn't a whole lot of opportunity. But again, when I was at George Brown, there wasn't... Like nobody talked about independent produ- producing. Your track was going to be audition, get the role, audition, get the role, audition, get the role. Mm-hmm. That was your, going to be your life. Um, and we never talked about self-producing or producing your own work. And we, if we did, it was a sidebar for somebody who might not be a successful actor in that sense. Right. Maybe you could do your own work. You poor thing. Way. You poor thing. Yes. Yeah. 
Yeah. It's it's very funny because I realized halfway through first year university that as much as I like to be on stage, Mm -hmm. and mostly because I thought it was hilarious to cover lines for people who forgot, I was not a brilliant Mm -hmm. performer. I was a fine comedian, but that was about it. Um, And... And, but did, that did not mean I didn't want to work in theater. Mm. And that's where I think uh, looking at uh, theater administrators or theater managers or theater producers as failed performers mm. or failed artists yeah. is actually not to credit them with, they know theater, they have an eye, they have an aesthetic bent, mm-hmm. they have the capacity to work with directors and artistic directors to put together the seasons and the programs. They're not, uh, you know, I once had somebody refer to me as a bureaucrat. uh, We're not bureaucrats. That's not what we do. No. And and that's why, although ironically, I'm at like a meta theater organization because we don't produce Mm -hmm. theater. We just help people produce theater. Uh, And I I, I will say I do miss artists in my space. Mm. That's a really... um, I feel the lack. Yeah. Um, but uh, producing is a very real one of the pillars. Yeah. Of yeah. Uh, the sector, and it doesn't get the credit. No. Mostly because it's not glamorous. It's not glamorous, and again, most people who end up producing their own work never thought that that was going to be something that they would that they would do. A lot of people just sort of think. I'm going to become an actor and that's Mm -hmm. about as much as they've thought. And then when the reality sets in, a lot of times they don't even realize that they're producing. And so it just becomes trial and error and a little bit of a mess. Um, And with that, does, does PACT have programs for the independent, like the actor, the performer producer? We don't. We're very much, because of the the way we evolve, we're Mm -hmm. very much geared to uh, the notion of organization. Mm -hmm. Um, in fact, our bylaws, to be a member, you have to be an incorporated organization. Mm. Because one of the things that we do is we say uh, uh, it is for the professional community. So mm. we have a membership committee that reviews and says, yep, look at those finances. They've produced two shows. Right. over the, They do have declared a season. Mm-hmm. Uh, they have a history of paying their artists. Um, uh, so it not we're in no way an arbiter. Mm-hmm. But we basically say, yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. We agree that right. these people have have come here. But that doesn't mean that um, someone who was going to be an independent producer couldn't actually seek support mm-hmm. as uh, through our services, mm-hmm. through relationships. Like, you don't have to be a PAC member to come to the conference. Right. Um, we are about to launch a new engagement program for non-producing theater organizations mm. and also for independent professionals, mm. which is really is kind of geared to producers, production managers um, who are between gigs but who want to remain engaged mm-hmm. with the community. Um, and we're also working uh, to support uh, learning uh, on the part of emerging producers mm-hmm. and managers. Uh, we talk. I'm, you know, I'm going to speak at Humber on Thursday about uh, la- the oh so exciting labor relations in Canadian theater and human resources. <laughs> um, uh, and and so we we we're, we engage in sort of participation. We helped uh, co-present uh, the India Exchange with Tapa, mm-hmm. uh, which was uh, grew out of what used to be the small theater uh, trade forum. 
which is mm-hmm. really learning experiences. Mm-hmm. We bring in granting officers to talk about writing grants, mm-hmm. marketing people to talk about how to create a marketing campaign, all of that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. So we support it, but it's not yeah. it's not the, at the forefront currently no. of our programs. Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm curious about, about that conference that, that you have, because I know mm-hmm. that one of the things that I often have struggled with as uh, somebody who you know, a performer as a, as a creator of theater and, mm-hmm. and in those sorts of ways is, is finding the community of, of, of theater people, because it mm-hmm. can be a bit of a solitary thing. You work by yourself or you yeah. work with a small group of people, but how do you grow outside of what can sometimes seem a, a cliquish, uh, 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 work environment where right. you're working with people that, you know, always looking for ways to, to, to reach out. What, what, if somebody was to go to the the conference in Charlottetown, what kind of things would they would they see there? Um, so every conference, we we try to develop a theme for every mm-hmm. conference, um, and with the new strategic plan, um, uh, Toronto was outside looking in was the notion mm-hmm. of where was the center of Canadian mm-hmm. theater. Um, uh, in Calgary, the theme sort of as its center was building bridges mm-hmm. between. Uh, organizations and uh, we're trying to come up with a good name for it but working together right. really at Charlottetown um, once upon a time it was really just uh, artistic directors and general managers of companies mm-hmm. um, uh, we've expanded that we are encouraging student participation mm-hmm. uh, in 2015 NTS sponsored 10 of their students to attend nice. the conference in Toronto uh, two of those students led a panel last year in Calgary, uh, which was about building bridges between the emerging professional mm-hmm. and the professional community. And we hope to see a lot of student participation in Charlottetown. Yeah. I'm going to be speaking uh, to the dean at Grenfell campus in Newfoundland, which has uh, an 80-student uh, performance stagecraft mm-hmm. program. And we hope to see them there. So. Uh, if you're a newcomer to a PAC conference, mm-hmm. you can say, uh, I'm a first-timer, and we'll pair you with a conference buddy mm-hmm. who will basically say, okay, who do you want to meet? What do you want to know? Mm-hmm. Uh, we'll go to these sessions. So we haven't set the programming, so I'm going right. to use Calgary as an sure. example. Um, so Calgary, uh, we, had a, we have a number of plenary speakers. We brought in uh, Nikkei Jonah uh, and Hassan, whose last name escapes me, uh, who had been... Uh, the sort of the internal critics at the Arts Council of England who helped them develop their diversity programming mm-hmm. and sort of their equity program throughout the, the council. Um, so we have a number of plenary sessions like that. We also did a session on holding territory, which was about the relationship, um, uh, the indigenous peoples, the host, if you were a host nation, what does it mean when people come onto your land, whether you're mm-hmm. settlers or from another right. nation? And... Um, so, so those plenary sessions are really sort of uh, inspiring speeches. Mm-hmm. Uh, then we have a number of breakout sessions. So uh, we did uh, a piece on uh, Cahoot's uh, newly released Deaf Artist Toolkit mm-hmm. so that um, people could be exposed to what, what does that mean working with deaf artists yeah. in theater? Um, you know... Uh, how to have an inclusive signed performance. Mm-hmm. We did sessions on uh, uh, marketing in the age of social media, mm-hmm. um, which is 
uh, always a hearty conversation because everybody does it and understands it differently. Yeah. Um, there is uh, there are rooms roundtables where there's an artistic uh, director's uh, roundtable and a general manager's director's roundtable, uh, which have now gotten really big. So we want to want to actually try and break them out a bit smaller, um, in which people just talk about the current things they're mm. dealing with. So. Um, Someone can sit in a room of general managers and everybody can talk about, you know, Castle and the wild, mm-hmm. widely misunderstood uh, Canadian uh, commercial anti-spam law mm-hmm. um, or uh, how to motivate staff in a small company when you've had a bad year. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, what do you do when a staff member starts to call in sick all the time? Right. How do you work with your board of directors when they begin to to meddle it a little bit too much in what it is, you know, mm-hmm. the professional leaders know how to do. Um, there were also, gosh, last year we did open space technology, which is uh, creating conversations that are based on people in the room. Mm. So everybody comes together and puts subjects that they want to talk about on the table. Um, of course, none of which I can remember off the top of my head right now. Um, we, I, I, I ended up in one... Uh, uh, which is about the awkward conversation, which is was around the Canada 150 mm-hmm. grant and the fact that it was actually sort of, uh, it felt uh, predisposed to uh, privilege those organizations who had the capacity to develop and create and put together a grant application for a bold project mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, because they already had. Right. right. So yeah. it, any equity seeking organization couldn't break through that. Right. So that was sort of a, that was a quite a hearty conversation. Um, there were conversations about what to do about burnout mm. when you're, exa- and we all have it. Oh yeah. Yeah. Um, so hearing from, and it, in that room, there was, you know, uh, our board member was led by, uh, I think it was artist from Manitoba theater projects, theater projects, Manitoba, pardon me. Um, and, and so that group had some of the students in it. Mm. Um, and we've also begun to invite um, to find local partners who will sponsor the participation mm. of emerging and culturally diverse mm. organizations. Because the registration is, uh, is about $450, but it covers some meals, etc. Right. But it, it can be impossible for an individual working within a small, unfunded organization yeah. To, to put that together with the travel money. Mm-hmm. So we've just, that sponsorship is there. And so those conversations are bringing, I think, fresh voices to mm-hmm. the table. Um, it, it's, it's, a, it's a lot of fun. It's a lot of talking. Right. right? Like you start talking the day you get there. Yeah. And then uh, the airport on the way out <laughs> is always hilarious because everyone is sitting around and no one is talking anymore. <laughs> we have it, four days of nonstop mm-hmm. talking mm-hmm. about theater. Yeah. And it's very exciting. Mm. Um, and plus this year, you know, I'm, I've never been to Charlottetown. So. It's gorgeous. It's, it's gorgeous. Yeah. I mean, it's end of May. Can't be any worse than the first conference I attended was in Cowhead mm-hmm. at the end of May okay. in Newfoundland where it snowed. <laughs> um, so, um, it, it's an opportunity to sort of see the world and see colleagues again. And, and you build such great relationships yeah. and people you can pick up the phone to at any time. Mm. And mm. that's the thing I think that it, it, it really demystifies right. the notion that there's some kind of inside and outside. Right. 
uh, sometimes just people you haven't met yet. Yeah, yeah. Do you find there's a lot more conversation? Are, are you seeing a lot of conversation about where the audience is going? I know that a couple of years ago during uh, uh, NTSF in Toronto, there was a conversation that Derek Chua put together with a number of people um, where they were talking about where is our audience going? That was a general thing, and people sat for two hours, and we never really came up with an answer. But are, are, are the, the, you're, the members talk, of well, the pack talking we, about Well, that? we do talk about it because there are different kinds of audiences, mm. right? Yeah. You know, the question is, where are older audiences going? Mm. Well, you know what? They're not actually coming to theater anymore. Mm. You know, the original sort of uh, older, white, middle-class yeah. university the, the, the The early boomers mm. are now... They're not, they may not be coming to theater as much as they used to. Um, subscription patterns are changing. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, I think uh, we've actually really diversified our audiences. Mm -hmm. And there used to be, in Toronto, for example, there used to be people who would subscribe to Factory, Tarragon, and Canadian State. Yeah. Or to Soul, Pepper, National Ballet, and Tarragon. Yeah. Or, mm -hmm. yeah. you know. And I think that the behaviors have changed. Yeah. I don't necessarily think they've gone away, um, but we have, particularly in, in the big urban centers, mm -hmm. there's such a multiplicity of option. Mm -hmm. I personally have always thought at a certain point people just shut down and say, I'm not making a decision. Yeah. I'm going to stay home in my pajamas. Well, I mean, there is, I was just thinking about that because also at home. There's TV, Netflix. There's there's all those other things. There's mm -hmm. the DVDs, the DVDs that you spend years collecting. And, yeah, so I haven't looked at any. Yeah, of yeah. course. But there's all these things. <clears throat> so um, I guess that yeah, it's that question that everybody's still asking: is how do you get people away from Netflix to come out on TV? Which is the unanswered question. <clears throat> well, I think it depends. Yeah, certainly with some younger audiences, and I would call them the emerging audiences, mm -hmm. right? Mid twenties to thirties who have a choice to go to a concert, mm -hmm. go to a film, yeah. go to a club, yeah. go out for dinner. They're actually looking very much for a whole evening experience, mm -hmm. right? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, their buying patterns have changed. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, years ago, before the mid-sized theaters took credit cards to reserve tickets, people would just call and leave their name and number, and you'd be like, I'll put you down for two. Mm -hmm. yeah. And then at a certain point, I forget what happened. First time the Blue Jays were in the World Series, I was at a company, and that was our pattern. Mm -hmm. um, and then we ended up with a show that had been basically sold out. Yeah. Game two of the World Series. Uh, we were down to six people. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, so there are yeah. competing mm -hmm. attentions. Um, then there's also... Um, so then you move to taking credit cards, and then people were booking, you know, a couple of weeks out, maybe a month out, or if they weren't subscribers... Uh, and then about six years ago, the pattern started to change. The lead time on the booking got shorter mm -hmm. because people were like, I don't know what I'm going to want to do at the end of the week. They yeah. make their decision on the Monday night. Yeah. Then it went to like maybe the Wednesday night. Yeah. And then all of a sudden it flipped around again and moved back to walk up. Huh. Right, yeah. so people, young people, were not booking to, and I say yeah. young people because I'm old. Right, um, uh, you you would see that people instead of booking a ticket online, yeah. which they had been the year before, they'd been booking a ticket online the night before. Yeah, um, then I would say two years ago it turned into 
they were making the decision about what they were going to do at dinner. Yeah. So you, then you've got walk-ins. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so the behaviors have changed. The question is how we respond to those changed behaviors. Mm-hmm. I look at the rise in the storefront movement. Yeah. Um, whatever my concerns may be about the spaces. Mm-hmm. Um, um, the reality is that for someone in a storefront theater that holds 60 people, the 35 people that would make a 100-seat house feel empty, yeah. it feels packed it out. Feels it's packed. exciting. Yeah. It's dynamic. Mm-hmm. They spill out onto the sidewalk. Yeah. And figuring out how we connect with the appropriate audience, mm. because there is no such thing as a universal audience. Yeah. There's an audience for that show, yeah. at that time, in that space, with those artists, mm-hmm. which is what makes theater exciting, because it's very, uh, what's the word, ephemeral, yeah. right? Yeah. Even though it could be an existing text, if you don't see that night... Yeah. You will never be that again. You will never yeah. be that audience member again, yeah. and that show will never happen in that way again. Mm-hmm. Um, so figuring out how to create that ongoing excitement about it is what I think uh, theaters are, I wouldn't say struggling with, mm. uh, because theater is nothing if not a great innovator. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's just that the the environment we're in has changed so rapidly. Mm-hmm. It's changed very much quickly, more very rapidly quickly. Yeah. than our practice has. Well, it's, I mean, and I don't think it's, it's I don't think it's ever changed quite this quickly before mm-hmm. because of the innovations in technology. Going from, you know, for well, when people were talking about the importance of tweet seats that yeah. I never thought were really. I don't think the tweet seats ever really became a thing. People thought people needed to be able to tweet about the show while they were watching it. Um, and then, you know, still that, the whole question of getting people away from the social media. And now it's not even Twitter anymore. Yeah. It's Instagram, Yeah, right? exactly, exactly. Yeah, which, which is its own, which is, which is its own yeah. thing because you, as it is, you don't want people taking pictures during the show anyway. I mean, I've worked front of house. I know that. Oh no, but well then, they can't. That's the question, right? right. Is, is 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 that it's you know they want to, but you have to you know you have to find the you know what does your audience want as opposed to what what the the production wants and things like that. If it, well, here's an interesting thing. So uh, we negotiate. Packed, it's actually a volunteer mm-hmm. team negotiates the individual agreement. Mm-hmm. Right now we're in uh, 2016 is year two of the current CTA. Mm-hmm. Uh, yes. Um, so we're, we start negotiation, pre-negotiations in the fall of 2017 mm-hmm. for the next Canadian right. theater agreement. Um, uh, 2012 to 2015 theater agreement uh, used the word logger. Mm-hmm. We talked about it. Yes. In 2015 to 2018, the language was changed to social media. Yes. Um, we now have to anticipate in discussions in the fall of 2017, and so I put together sort of a working group of marketing yeah. directors and people who've worked with this, what marketing uh, and communications practice we have to figure out if we can anticipate what that's going to look mm. in the next agreement, which will run, am I remembering this correctly, to 2021. Mm. Just a minute. Terminates 2018. Yes, the next one's 2018, 19, 19, 20, 20, 21. Huh. We have to figure out what, how we will need to communicate and promote the word. Right. Which, is, of the which is difficult considering how quickly it's changing. 
Absolutely, yeah. absolutely. When uh, uh, when the current CTA uh, was negotiated, because the negotiation starts like eight months before mm -hmm. it needs to be adopted, um, people, companies were not using boosted Facebook posts. Right. Hmm. At least not very often. Right. Um, and now, it's a regular thing. Yeah. But the question is, is that the same as a television advertisement? Mm. Does that mean actor agreement rates kick in? For mm. the $27 you spent to boost the post to 3,000 people who said theater and were in right. downtown Toronto? Yeah. Um, it, so it, it, there's a huge evolution, and I think in some ways, there's this still the best is word of mouth. Yeah. Whether it's Facebook or Twitter... You have to look at who the who the person is. Yes. Right? Yeah. Who's actually doing that tweet? Yeah, just look at who they are. What what's the quality of their follower and that engagement? Because you can't know. You know, not everybody is is the same. No, and and the other thing about it is, you know, once upon a time, theaters had love hate relationships with the critics. Mm -hmm. Right. You absolutely wanted the critic to come to your opening night. Yep. Because they loved the show. You were going to do fine. Mm -hmm. Um, they didn't always love the show, so still we pursued them to yep. get them into the house. Yeah. Um, and I used to say, um, you know, there's no guarantee now. I used to say two years ago. I used to say um, there's no guarantee that a good review will fill the house. No. But there is a guarantee that a bad review will kill the house. Yes. Yeah. Absolutely. And yet, uh, newspapers are dying. Yeah. We have uh, rise in bloggers. Yeah. I had a uh, an artistic director call me uh, and talking about the number of uh, blogger reviewers mm -hmm. who sought uh, opening night tickets. Mm -hmm. And he was like, "Is there some kind of accreditation process for this?" And I said, "No, but to be fair, we don't have an accreditation process for our regular yeah. reviewers either." Yeah. I said, "But there's a certain." Uh, you know, caveat emptor, you know, you've got to be aware of who you're booking into the yeah. house, um, read their previous stuff, check yeah. out their, uh, uh, their reviews. But I think, you know, excited, happy audiences are the best way, uh, or moved or yeah. incented <clears throat> are the really one of the best ways yeah. to, uh, grow audiences, but then you have the problem with, if you've only got a two-week run, what on earth are you going to do? Well, that's the, I mean, that's the problem with, with, uh, most reviews for one thing, because mm -hmm. if you only have a two-week run, that review can only really do you benefit in its second, in the second half. Um, and, and Toronto yeah. Star only has sort of two review windows, it looks like now, Thursday yeah. and Sunday. And they, and, you know, Toronto Star is reviewing stuff, uh, 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 Globe Mail is re reviewing stuff, the Toronto Sun only reviews stuff in certain venues. So your print media is not really your friend there. Well, There's no really reviews. Arguably, the question is how many of the Toronto Sun readership are actually. Well, there is that. There yeah. is that. There is that. But I mean, in terms of in terms of like, there you don't get theater reviews on television, so nope. that's out. So you've got your print media, you've got your online media, and really, I think what people trust more than that is their um, is the people on their Facebook feed. Yep. And um, you look for those people who are connectors who are. Uh, you know, talking about shows that they've seen, shows that yeah. they like. What sh what should they look for? Those are the trusted audiences that, that can that can get people out. I think even more than than 
you know, I, I mean, there are some trusted uh, reviewers that I really enjoy or mm-hmm. sources that I enjoy, but there's only really a couple and there's thousands of, of theater blogs. And it's also that theaters as, are expanding the way they have conversations about what's happening in the theater. Mm-hmm. It's like, come, uh, we'll have a talk back. Yeah. There'll be a pre-show talk. Later on, you can communicate. There'll be a Twitter chat mm-hmm. about about the shows. And, and I don't want to say they're flailing, but I think each theater is trying to figure out the way it works best for their audience, yeah. for their particular set of people who come into their space, mm-hmm. and or the space that they've rented for that yeah. production. And I, I, it, it would be so fabulous if there was like an A plus B plus C equals mm. yeah, it plus was, good but, work equals yes. a full house, right? Yeah, um, but there isn't. No, so. and there, yeah, that's the. That's the challenge, is how do you get the word out? And that's always been, I think, the challenge, is how do you get the word out, especially mm-hmm. with limited budgets. Because there's maybe only one place in this city that can afford to advertise on TV, and everybody else has to advertise on subways or, or uh, even just in the like by putting up posters in the Starbucks. I know. I'm saying the subway, that's, that's actually a big buy. Yeah. In order to make that... Uh, have any value really oh yeah you're talking thousands you, and thousands. absolutely i remember i remember doing a production years ago and uh i purchased uh two posters in a uh in a subway station yeah a young and bluer but that that was like that was the biggest spend i did for that production yeah and i would hate to see what it was now and it was not effective to do those two two posters you have to do a lot more than that well and, and so the question is that's whether you go niche marketing or broad-based marketing yep. you decide okay i know that how many people do I need in that house? Yeah. Right? I need 1,400 people. The 100-seat house to make my budget. So where am I going to find those 1,400 people? Right. And then you you break it down into, I know a certain number of them are going uh, to this bar. I will go and ask that bar owner and ask those bartenders mm-hmm. uh, if they will come see the show on the opening night. Can I put stuff out in the bar? Mm-hmm. Um, you the best way to do it is to figure out who are going to be your ambassadors for your show right. in a particular niche market. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, it's hilarious. One of the most successful marketing things I ever did was around the Fringe show I, I co-wrote with a friend, and this is 20 years ago, 24 years ago, um, was... Uh, it, at the blonde jokes were ever at the time, so it was called blonde. So we decided we would go after hair salons. Mm-hmm. And so we went into every hair salon and talked to the head stylist and handed them cards and talked about blondness. Mm. And hairstylists need something to talk about. Mm-hmm. Yes, yeah. So they talked the show up. Mm. It was great. Yeah. It worked really, really mm. well. Um yeah, I mean, and then we did all the other things too, right? We postered, yeah. we postcarded, mm-hmm. we you know did all of that. Yeah. But I honestly think that finding a community who had the capacity to do the talking mm. was the most effective, mm. and that's because you had people who were desperately looking for conversation. Yeah, um, yeah. With people who sat in chairs in front of them for eight hours every day. Yeah. Mm. Uh, if only you know it was that easy. If know. only it was that easy. Yeah. You know? Yeah. We used to. Um, the Toronto, when it was the Toronto Theatre Alliance, it's now the Toronto Alliance for the Performing Arts, used to once a year have, uh, and it was back in the day when everybody had brochures, right? Used to have a coffee and donuts with cab drivers, and so we would go to uh, uh, each of 
sometimes it would be in a hotel mm. and through a drive-thru and they could come and they could get a coffee and they could get a donut and they could listen to a bit of a spiel and talk. And then, because cab drivers would then be in the city and someone would say, I, I, I'm in, from out of town. What, could, what, what should, should I, I be do? doing? Yeah. Um, and in every city, too, there are concierge associations. Yeah. Uh, Toronto has a very powerful concierge association. Invite the concierges to mm. your previews. Mm-hmm. Get to know them. Talk yeah. to them about what they're looking to recommend. Because every single downtown hotel has somebody who says, I want something that's not usual. Yeah, 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 yeah. Hmm. Um, just with the, a little bit of time that I have left, mm-hmm. uh, you've you've alluded a couple of times to your path to how you got to where you are. Oh, yeah. I would actually love to hear about, first off, uh, what is it about theater that drew you to, you to it when you were young? And what was your path to getting to be where you are now? Okay, I'm going to start, like, long time. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so like I was like one of those six-year-olds who put together variety shows with neighborhood kids on the picnic table, mm-hmm. wrote my own music, did my own stuff, you know, was in school plays from like nine, uh, went to high school where it, it was, you know, all musicals all the time, uh, started a non-musical company, mm-hmm. um, but I grew up in Kingston which had an incredibly high per capita amount of community theater. Hmm. Um, yeah, I started, you know, uh, building sets and doing front of house when I was 13 mm-hmm. uh, for one of the local community theaters, uh, Domino Theater. And slowly sort of, I started doing that, continued to perform, thought I was going to be a performer. Yeah. Meanwhile, uh, uh, at 17, I was house managing the Grand Theatre, which is an 826-seat roadhouse. Um, applied uh, to go to university. So I had caught it, right? Yeah, yeah. I yeah. had the theatre. Oh, yeah. Um, never considered anything else. Mm. Um, did not want to grow up and go into film. That was never mm. part of my thing. And I think it's, you know, uh, part of it is front of house and backstage work and, and the hush and the excitement and the anticipation. Like that that moment where it's going to happen and you yeah. don't know what's going to happen because it's live. Yeah. Although you know it's going to happen. You know it's supposed to happen. Yeah. And um, went to York. Of course, I went to be a performer, as I said. Turned out, yeah, guess what? But then I started working on, uh, I became a fixer in non-departmental productions. I would fix in costume design. I was basically sort of a producer who would come in and uh, resolve the issues with the pink ladies' jackets for the industry, you know. Yeah. Because the stage manager had shrunk everything, you know. (laughs) I realized I couldn't be a stage manager because um, I would get frustrated easily. Right. Be like, your costume is here on the rack under the piece masking tape with your name on it. Yeah. It's your character's name. It's not your name, but, you know, you get the point, Uh, which was not good. And um, so I, uh, a friend of mine was on a work program at the theater center in box office. And this this is 84. And I graduated university. I'd only ever had one other job as a waitress in a restaurant. It was terrible. It was terrible. Terrible waitress. Um, 
I'd also done hostessing, but it's basically all that kind of stuff. And so I went to this work program and said, tell you what, if you give me this job, I haven't been out of school and out of work for 16 weeks, but if you give this to me, I won't have to apply for welfare. So you might as well give it to me now. And so I started at the theater center. Mm -hmm. And when I left in 1992, I was the producer. Mm. Mm. Um, it helped that it turned out, I didn't really embrace it until I was in my 40s, that I'm a control freak. I like to know how to do everything. Right. I like to know how to do everything well. And so, um, yeah, I got an internship. I learned how to bookkeep in big 30 column blue line. Had to do it in pencil because I was always getting it wrong, whether it was a debit <laughs> or a credit. I had some great mentors, great Cynthia Grant, mm. who was the founding artistic director of Nightwood, uh, Claire Hopkinson, who's now uh, at the Toronto Arts Council, mm -hmm. uh, Svetlana Zylan, who was a director dramaturg who passed away a number of years ago. Um, and yeah, I was really fortunate. I ran the theater center in the Poor Alex, in Lippincott, which is a disappeared space now condos, mm. uh, down uh, on Queen Street. Now it's like a swingers club across. The swingers club moved out, so it's like I remember. But I remember that that space. That was under, Sergeant A. Trowles under branch, the, the Legion, wasn't it? It was the Sergeant A. E. Trowles yep. branch of the Royal Canadian Legion. Yep. We had the main space. I and remember. I actually remember uh, doing a summer works performance in that space. Um, and, uh, something was going that was, on. That must have been the first year of summer. It was like second or, or th yeah. first, maybe first or second year. And there was some kind of something going on upstairs from the Legion, oh, which was night. almost drowning out what it we was, were doing. They yeah. used to have polka nights. They used to have a fight. <laughs> I used to fight with the president of the Legion, um, over it. Mm. It was very funny because they didn't want to come to our shows. No. Anyway. And so then, uh, I got a Canada Council B grant because mm -hmm. I had only been at the theater center and I did independent producing um, and I worked with uh, Death Waits, an artist who uh, is now a poet, Jacob Brand. Um, I worked with all sorts of different companies, Company mm -hmm. of Sirens, which was Cynthia Grant's follow-up com uh, company, uh, DNA Theater, which was Hello LaToya. Mm -hmm. Um, and so did that for a long time. Uh, and then in, I was general manager for the Ontario Puppetry Association mm -hmm. and then went to the dance umbrella as almost, I'm telling you, there's an entire generation of arts administrators in the city of Toronto mm -hmm. who all spent some period of time at the dance umbrella. <laughs> and then, uh, I left theater mm. and ran an Apple computer dealership. Carbon computing for almost nine years, mm. um, which was super fun. Uh, was you know when I went there, it was buy low, sell high. Mm -hmm. uh, if you felt like it, turn off the phones and play Quake. Uh, <laughs> the owner used to take all the staff out to see the next Star Wars movie, mm. um, and we went from you know five guys buy low, sell high to forty-five employees, three locations. Right. Um, and sort of got bored with that, but it's all the same skills yeah. as running a theater company. Do you remember what it was that, that, that made you leave the theater? Ah, uh, well, it was a couple of things. Uh, my carers had been elected for the second time. Mm -hmm. uh, I was really tired. Mm. Uh, I had been working at that point marketing dance shows. 
and which was heartbreaking. You know, artists, you know, choreographers would work for two years creating work, and they would come with to you and say, "I have a show in six weeks at the Winch. I have fifteen hundred dollars. Can you bring me an audience?" Right, and I was like. <laughs> but I got to work also got to work with Peggy Baker and right. Denise Fujiwara and mm-hmm. Bill James so that was yeah. quite amazing but it, it was tired I had I just had my second child mm-hmm. uh, Dan Brother was restructuring and I was really tired I was exhausted yeah. I just thought I can't do this anymore so uh, I stayed on the board I was on the board of Theatre Gargantua almost mm-hmm. that entire time um, I didn't see a lot of theatre mm. I was almost in a self-imposed exile right and then um, I came back what was it that brought you back in? Um, I love Carbon. It was like I had I'd done my time. There was nothing more for me to build. Mm-hmm. There were no more problems for me to solve. Apple was selling direct and so gutting the market mm-hmm. that we had built. Yeah. Um, and I considered staying in technology. And, but it's exhausting. You know, yeah. you work 50 or 60 hour weeks running a multi-million dollar company. You're accruing somebody else as well. Mm-hmm. If I'm going to work 50 or 60 hours a week, I might as well be doing it something I love. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So I came back to theater and came back with a vengeance. Love it. Um, and now, so I was at the Young Center. I moved from the Young Center to Factory mm-hmm. and was uh, uh, there during from 2009 to 2014, during the big transition mm-hmm. here. Um, and then this job came up mm-hmm. and I thought, huh. I would like to work with companies who I know we're all experiencing the same thing. Mm. Flatline government grants, audience attrition, changing patterns. Mm. Um, And I thought I want to make change at a bigger level. Thank you so much. This has been a lot of fun. We're, we're basically at, at an hour, and, and uh, I've really enjoyed talking with you. Thank you so much. Well, thank you so much, Phil.